You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. Alongside regular guests and friends, we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. So Joe, I understand you recently did an essay on Raymond Gator and his ethical views and how that relates to genetic engineering. I did um, so, Gator. So, who is Raymond Gator? I believe he's an Australian philosopher. Because he's not that well known, is he? No, he's not. Um, he's quite contemporary, fairly modern. Is he still alive? <laughs> I believe so. Joe reads philosophers that you've never heard of. He's yeah, so cool. you wouldn't know him. You wouldn't. You're not cool enough. I knew Gator before he was cool. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's a bit. Yeah, he's a, this is a bit of a hipster reference compared to someone he's like an indie Lennon. philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, um, his view of ethics. What exactly is it, and when is it? So the first thing that Gator does is separate morality from ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give that um, an illustration, morality for him would be a wider spectrum. So take utilitarianism. It basically it gives us uh, it gives us the philosophic calculus, which is a thing that we can apply to everything supposedly. He calls that morality. That is a sense of understanding about universalization. So it can apply to deontology as well. So any universal theory that applies to everyone and is kind of macro as opposed to micro. Yeah, so is it, so uh, kind of like prescriptions right. of actions, the do's and don'ts, the yeah. taboos, and the, uh, the the kind of the actions we affirm in a societal kind of uh, space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so ethics is different how? So ethics for him um, is, as we've talked about Levinas before, it's more phenomenological. It's more personal and it's these individual encounters with each other. That is ethics. So how we see each other, how we interact with each other, regardless of any you know uh, theory that we apply to that, is the immediate reaction we have between each other, mm. which is ethics. So yeah, to, to get a full understanding of what Levinas says, you'd probably be best to look at the podcast we just did on it. Um, but do you think that Gator kind of uh, deviates from Levinas in any sense, or do you think they're pretty much the same? Well, Gator doesn't talk about the face. So if you've listened to the, the Levinas podcast, you know he focuses on the face, and it's all about that part of the human. With Gator, it's less specific. He also avoids any religious talk at all. Uh, obviously, we've talked about Levinas not being religious, but he does use religious um, connotations he uses Eyes the talk of God yeah. right um, Gator is not Gator is purely secular so that is where he differs um, and also the separation of morality and ethics I don't think Levinas ever necessarily states that yeah, I, I, he implies it definitely yeah but, I was going to say it's, it's implicit because again uh, existentialism and continental philosophy is this move away from traditional morality right. and conventional religion conventional narratives Um so, so yeah, so Gator definitely fits within that, you think? Definitely. Okay, so um, was there a particular book or a particular thing you looked at with Gator? Um, I, I can't remember Because I, I, I just read his, um, where the, the thing that uh, apparently conceptualises his philosophy the most, which is, mm-hmm. the, um, is the, it's the story of when he worked in a psychiatric hospital. Yep. Have you guys read that one? I have. I've touched upon it. I haven't read the whole thing. 
but I have read basically the bit you've talked about. Yeah, it's called A Common Humanity, Thinking About uh, Love and Truth and Justice. Yes. So um, in this, he basically uh, describes his experience working in a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he talks about the way that people conceptualise their treatment of psychiatric patients. Right. And how that can be quite brutal. And how the language doesn't really match up with the actions. Because I think he's one of these people, I mean, to put it in a very colloquial way of, 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 uh, kind of communicating his ethics, you could kind of say actions speak louder than words. That's maybe one way of looking at it. But I think there is also some epistemic stuff going on. There's some ontological stuff going on. And that I found quite difficult reading this. I mean, you haven't really read it, but um, he describes that a, a nun visits the hospital and somehow her actions are better than anyone else. Her, her uh, way of conceptualising love is better because it's love without uh, being condescending. Right. And um, I don't know, I, it gets a little bit more complicated because then he starts comparing goodness to courage, saying that courage is different from goodness because courage can't... Say if you're, if you're courageous um, on behalf of a particular ideal, the ideal can still be false. But with goodness, if you're good on, on behalf of something... The goodness reveals the thing that justifies it to be true. And that claim um, I find particularly difficult. So the way I've been interpreting this is like I've sort of said it, and I've actually mentioned this before in the Mindfulness podcast. So you might be able to, I'm pretty sure that made the edit. Um, but it's to do with this idea of, um, I mean, I call it behavioural truth. I think some people call it um, or metaphorical truth. Or, so it's this idea that you can have a behaviour that turns out to be um, have a more truthful output or result um, in terms of what actually happens, but the belief that that reinforced the behaviour might be false in and of itself. Um, and I think the example I give was in sports. You have a, a guy who's um, you know baseball, baseball ba- bad guy or whatever, and he and but he and he believes that um, that you know he he's like in you know he prays or something or you know prays to the baseball god before he goes on, and that actually gives him loads of confidence. But for even though you know maybe the baseball god doesn't exist, um, that confidence that it might have actually made him a better player, so it actually produced a better behavioural output despite the actual truth of the situation not being you know necessarily one's well because. You know, there's a difference between um, the way in which someone is inspired to behave, um, the truth which inhabits them that will inspire them to behave in that sense. And so that's the way in which I was sort of interpreting that as that kind of behavioural truth and sort of separating um, this idea of like, well, I believe that um, such yeah. a thing is true, but that produces a truthful output and the output of the truth is what matters. And in this sense, he's saying, well, good, if the output is good then it then the, that justifies i mean he's actually saying yeah that actually creates it actually justifies and creates i would agree i, I agree with you true. having having read the gator I, I agree with you uh kind of 90 percent because gator kind of wants to say that it's not the uh intention of the action of love that is good and it's also um unlike what you're saying it's not actually the outcome that matters. Right, so it's, it's actually not the... It's, yeah, read. the outcome doesn't okay. justify... It, it's, it's not deontology and it's not consequentialism. Yeah, okay. it's 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 weird. So do you want to pick that up? Because, like, you know... I, I mean, pretty much what Nigel said is is how I'd interpret it initially, um, but to not the full extent. Right. So it is some kind of middle ground between the two. Yeah, I think it's just a... Uh, he wants to think of it as, like, a wholly different way of... Right, it's a whole new it. thing for him. Yeah. yeah. Is it uh, probably more in line with something like virtue? Yeah, is it yeah. Quite probably, yeah. So it's right. the... It's the 
the action of of being ethical that's important, not the outcome and not the uh, the intention. So when I say the action of the the, I mean, virtue ethics is obviously focusing on the character, the virtues yeah. a character has, <clears throat> but this is more just I don't know the the well, expression of love. Like the, yeah, that the love or the good output is the virtue perhaps if, if we're talking about yeah the way Gator would describe it is a recognition of someone else as another human um, you can you know combine love and compassion and all that kind of thing in that but mm. the simple thing for Gator is that ethics is simply recognising someone else as a human being that is all ethics is for him simple it's as that very like Levinas isn't it yeah, yeah. very Levinas but they've, yeah. they've never they don't cite each other. Well, obviously, no. Levinas doesn't cite Gator. Yeah, but. But apparently, Gator's never read Levinas. No, it, it doesn't read because it might make him too might powerful. Make it too powerful. Who knows? Um, <laughs> no, apparently, um, he's not ever referenced him as a source. No, he hasn't referenced him. So. He may have read him, but he hasn't referenced yeah. him directly. Certainly. Right. So and he, and is uh, is Gator a phenomenologist? Is he in that sort of line? I'd say so. Okay. Right. I'd say he's definitely. Um, He's definitely an existentialist. He's definitely continental. Um, yeah, I, I was with the phenomenology stuff. I was a bit uh, confused as to where he sort of sits epistemically mm. in terms of what he thinks knowledge is. But I think he wants to say, regardless of religious truth, because he does talk about religious truth as kind of being separate to ethical truth, okay. um, which is a bit confusing. But I think that he wants to say that at least ethical truth is this is this, this idea of um, conceptualizing the other to use a kind of Lebanese term as being dignified as being full human um, because he kind of, he also kind of wants to say that um, just conceptualizing someone as a human isn't quite enough um, that the action of doing that of, of uh, treating them like a human, makes them into a human that it's sort of contingent to that like the way of expressing love you mentioned dignity yeah in that how would you understand how dignity comes into play because you said that you recognize them as a as a human as as dignified mm. as someone that should be dignified or at least viewed as a dignified person where does someone go from an object to a, a person. What or is it? So, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think we're probably using a few too many Lebanesian ideas, even though obviously there are the ideas are quite similar. But he's talking in uh, within this anecdote of working in a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking about dignity, I can only imagine he's talking about the idea that uh, a lot of these people are incontinent. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, to take one example, he, which is one he mentions. And they would hose them down at sort of a mop's length, like an elephant at a zoo. He uses, yeah, that, yeah. He uses that example. And he says that most people also treated them like elephants at zoos. They treated them like objects. They, they were quite brutal in their, their language and their actions. Then he says, okay, so there are some other people that weren't. But they were seen as kind of naive fools who would take their time washing them by hand and, and everything. And he was wondering about well, what is it that makes that person be like that? What 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 is their drive? And um, these are the people that you use the language of dignity, but he wants to say that the action 
didn't reveal their dignity. If anything, it just revealed a kind of virtue signaling hypocrisy of, okay, sure. So they're washing their feet and everything going, you had a good day, Gareth, like wiping, <laughs> wiping their ass. But in fact, they're actually being quite condescending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then he uses the example of the, the nun that came there. And it was the nun's actions that revealed dignity because she wasn't condescending. She saw them as worthy uh, subjects of this kind of, uh, this really powerful sense of love that w- that wasn't contingent, that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't rely upon anything, sorry. So, um, I don't know, he, he, he kind of wants to say that in doing this, the nun revealed their dignity. Yeah, it's kind of confusing because yeah. I'm not entirely sure how how he's parameterizing dignity into. Yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, difficult idea to unpack. He's using dignity to describe treating a human as a human. I think. Yeah, I so, I, I think he's not. I don't think he's concerned with the nuances of, of what dignity entails. No. I think he's using it as a rhetorical flourish to just kind of conceptualize this idea. He wants to say he wants to use dignity as a way of negating condescension. Yeah. He wants to use it as, um, as un unqualified love. He wants to, as, as right. love, he's trying love to avoid, that is unconditional. So he's trying to avoid someone coming into um, psychiatric ward he was help, he was working in, washing down uh, one of the patients and saying, "Hey, I've done my job. Fuck it, I've washed them down. That's my job done." He's differentiating between that and someone who truly sees a vulnerable person in front of them and is going to care for them. Yeah. So, so you're separating the action yeah. a little bit. Right. So am I right in saying he's sort of, the way, the way he's following on from Levinas is Levinas would be more about the conception of someone as an individual, where he's sort of taking it to the step of also the behaviour has to reflect um, he's adding the that individual. Yeah. yeah, okay. So it's in, so the individual not only has to conceive of this individual mm. as a human, but it's also this extra, you know, you have to conceive with dignity and behave in such a way that, um, I, I mean, is is that sort of where he's developing this, or? I, be, I believe so. I think he's he's more of a practical uh, kind of ethicist. Like some of the papers I've seen that he's done, it's more like trying to bring these uh, semi-Levinesian stuff to to real day examples. So speaking, of, I think you made a good point. That yeah, is that is what he's after. He is practical. So when speaking of stuff. speaking of real everyday examples, how does how did you use Gator to to bring this to genetic engineering, which is like one of the big topical yeah. ethical things. So what I talked about was um, for ethics, according to Gator, it is treating a human as a human. Mm-hmm. Genetic engineering doesn't do that. So at the moment, what uh, most of science is focusing on in terms of genetics is something called CRISPR, um, C-R-I-S-P-R, which is basically gene editing. So taking out certain parts that are bad, putting in other things that are good. And in doing that, we're because you yeah because you uh, unpack that a little bit like so when we what, say what, good things oh, bad things okay illnesses so, versus like uh, parents what, yeah, yeah. what what kind okay, of okay so um, there's a guy called Julian Savalescu um, who approaches from a utilitarian point of view and basically what he says is that it is our moral obligation to genetically modify people for the best yeah. he gives an example he says there's embryo A and embryo B embryo A um, is subject to asthma. Embryo B is not. He says there is nothing better about embryo A than embryo B. And this is in a situation where someone's going to choose an embryo. 
So he says, every time you choose embryo B, because it doesn't has, have the, the predis predisposition to develop asthma, whereas embryo A does. So you destroy embryo A because it is objectively worse than embryo B. Mm. So but how does he like tie that with like an obligation or like a moral obligation? Because basically what he's saying is that we should want the best for for right. children, for the future, stuff like that. Yeah, and I would say there's probably two the two primary objections I'd imagine most people would have to this position. I suppose one... It's horribly um, subjective. Right. Yeah, so yeah, the one, the first one, the problem is like, is the slippery slow car argument, which would be yeah. how, when, at what point does this become eugenics? At right. what point yeah, does yeah, this yeah, yeah, absolutely. slip into, well, actually, I don't want my boy to have green eyes, I want him to have blue eyes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. Um, the second one is actually our understanding of the genome is nowhere near, like, <laughs> the genome is unbelievably complicated. I mean, it, it, actually, funnily enough, in terms of information, it's not actually something like 50 terabytes or something, something quite conceivable in terms of the actual raw amount of information. But obviously, what it's coding for and the way in which genes code is quite non-linear. Like, genes don't necessarily, you know, one-to-one -one interact with one particular thing. You don't have, like, you know, an allele will not be specifying, um, you know, it might be like, well, this is sort of blue, but you you can have, like, multiple alleles, and, you know, some can be recessive, some can not be, and you can have multiple ways in which those alleles express themselves, and you can even have genes that, like, shut down certain other alleles and shut, like, literally there to shut down other genes, and you can also have epigenetic genes which shut down at different points in your life, so you can have, like, for instance, psychosomatic dwarfism, which is um, the guy who wrote Peter Pan, who I can't remember his name now, Sibar um, Barnum or um, something Barnum. Um, I can't remember his name. Or see something Barry. See, see, yeah, yeah, Barry. Something, something Barry. James, James Barry. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, he's an example of psychosomatic dwarfism, which is where um, you actually have an effect on one of your growth genes, which stops your um, stops your brain from producing ghrelin, which is a growth hormone. So you can actually end up with, in extreme stressful situations, children who are under an enormous amount of duress during um, younger age will actually shut down their genes for growing. So it's like, you know, so this is all just like painting the, the picture of, yeah, the genome and genes and genetic engineering is immensely complicated in terms of like the one-to-one -one output of editing with something like CRISPR to, yeah, and I suppose that's the second objection would be like, well, at, you know, at what point do we really understand exactly where we're doing what we're editing? Right, and like, yeah. you know, and it's, it's innocent enough to say, well, okay, well, this this genome here, this, you know, could have Huntington's, for example, or a well, severe genetic Well, you say it's innocent enough, but I kind of want to bring in a third point that mm. isn't slippery slope, which is ethical, which is that, say if you, I mean, you, you're something like asthma yourself, but... Yeah. If you eliminate everybody with asthma, uh, you know, every potential person with asthma, what does that say about the extant people with asthma? Which is this, this is think, a point that Peter Singer makes, right. as you can imagine. Didn't, so, didn't Julian Zivasco study under Peter Singer? He did. Yeah, he wrote his thesis regarding moral obligation um, for genetic engineering under the supervision of Peter Singer. Which is strange because yeah, it is Peter Singer's like one of the foremost people on ethics. Yeah, 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 it is weird. Um, what Peter Singer says, um, particularly he talks about dwarfism. He says, okay, so people are making steps towards uh, genetically engineering uh, people without diseases, right? So we're trying to eradicate dwarfism. Let's just say there is a case where we're trying to eradicate dwarfism because technically it is um, it's a an issue for people is something they have to overcome, yeah. something they have to struggle with. Is it, is it classed as a disability? It is a disability. <laughs> yeah. So something that perhaps in the future, maybe we try and eradicate. So you're a dwarf living um, among, you know, a, a community of other little people, which there are. People have, like, created their own fucking societies and everything around it. How the hell do you feel when someone says, we're trying to eradicate people like you? 
We're trying to stop people like you being born. Your life isn't worth living. Don't we? No, right? now, you I, are I suffering think, from a disability. Think, and you understand that? Yeah, I think some people would see it as disability. I think I think many uh, people suffering with dwarfism might see it. Say, well, shit. Um, yeah, I've got a, perhaps a lower life expectancy. I've got health issues and uh, I can't reach high shelves. You know, there's lots of different problems. Well, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Shit's order of importance <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Shit's yeah. out of reach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, I-, I think others would say, well, actually, it's given me a unique perspective on life. I don't see yeah. it as a disability. Yeah. So it, it the informs other thing that, who I am. The other thing that Singer talks about is cochlear implants. So the, the, the hearing aid style thing that basically enables deaf people to hear under certain circumstances. Um, he opens one of his essays by saying that cochlear implants are genocide. Um, oh. And he does a really I mean, good job I mean of justifying that. I think, I, think, I, think, yeah. I think that's a rhetorical flourish. Yeah. Like. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he's just trying to be... Um, he, yeah, he, and he I, I, I would, I would exactly. say, I'm willing to bet if you polled everyone with dwarfism in this country, for example, if you could feasibly do something like that, um, I, would, I reckon you know, most of them would say, given the choice of being born without dwarfism, they would have preferred you know maybe maybe i'm wrong here i would say most of them would would have categorized it as a disadvantage or in some sense would would have wanted differently but i think most of the coping psychological coping mechanisms they have to employ are you know based around the acceptance of it and well i have a unique perspective and etc but they have to watch a lot but of I, I would rooms. i think yeah, and I would, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and i think they would also probably not necessarily want to wish it on on other people or or their children there's a really good episode of house i don't know if you guys watch house yeah, but um there's uh, there's this uh, woman with dwarfism, and then her her daughter has dwarfism, or so they think. And then it turns out that it they can literally choose whether she has dwarfism or not. And this is really interesting discussion because, yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to kind of say, you know, you're no more worse than anyone else. But you say to your daughter, look, you're you're fine as you are. You know, if you if you're going to be a, a uh, if, it, if dwarfism is unavoidable for you, that's that's fine. But then when you presented with the choice, I think it almost becomes a very different scenario. He says he says uh, cochlear implants are, are genocide. Right. So his justification for that is that um, an, an implant is allowing a deaf person to be part of, yeah. in air quotations, normal society. Um, and if that is the case, then the society that has been created around deaf people with you know their own language, all this community that's built up, deaf culture, deaf culture, is going to be eradicated. Which he's right; it, it has the potential to do that. Uh, just it's, just it's to play devil's advocate, let's say there's a a culture surrounding cancer research that gets destroyed. When they cure when cancer. They cure cancer. <laughs> a discipline, really. You're destroying yeah. a whole yeah. branch of medicine in a, yeah. in a day. I guess that is an argument. At the same time, it's, you know, is this an end justify the means? I mean, like, to yeah, a certain I mean, extent, I, it's I, like... I, I don't buy that for oh, a second. You're talking about the difference between a, a life-destroying disease to right. deafness. So, 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 you, so you draw the line... Uh, life destroying, and then anything less than life destroying. I'm not sure I'm drawing a line. I'm just kind of yeah. Right. No, I, I I do totally agree with you when it comes to. I, I wouldn't just draw the line at aesthetics. I, I would draw the line to a lot of uh, personally to a lot of uh, things that are seen as disabilities as well. 
Right. If we could, if we could eradicate them, it kind of goes back to the discussion we had on transhumanism. Like, I think it's it's this uh, sanitized, far too idealized version of the human, mm-hmm. and I think it's just um, kind of weird, like uh, puritanical, evangelical idea. Of the, of well, the, well, I would say, in some sense, I mean, as is the tradition with culture, it's like parts of it die off, and subcultures die off, and different things change, and culture changes in general as the society adjusts and changes different different development. I can say, well, yeah, there's some degree of inherent cult, uh, cultural value to everything or to, to, to different cultures. Um, but at the, at the same time, it's like, how much can, how much do we let the sort of you know, naturalistic sense of uh, cultural development and the death of certain subcultures and whatever naturally occur um, in order for development of the, an overarching culture to continue? You use the word culture about 7,000 times there. So, so <laughs> yeah. as a recap, mm. Gator. Yes. His work concerns ethical treatment of humans yes and then seeing a human as a human Mm -hmm. with with dignity and all that malarkey and then transporting that to genetic engineering um it's that's all about the definition of what is a human right so what's the 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 link between gator and i'm sure he probably hasn't done any work on it he hasn't no so what is your interpretation of his interpretation if you like so Having talked about genetic engineering, what it clearly does is sees humans as a group of genes to edit and control and change um, a series of problems. Like, no offence, like asthma is a problem for certain humans um, that they're going to take out, supposedly. um, And then we start the slippery slope of putting intelligence in, putting good memory and things like that, Mm. which is something I I have discussed and I suppose we'll go on to in a minute. Yeah, yeah, no, that that, that really is problematic, yeah. But what it is, is seeing humans as these series of problems and genes, not as a human. It totally misses the point of seeing human as a human. So it's kind of a combination of reductionism and it's sort of premising uh, from a foundational point of view of, of looking at uh, the other the the idea of the human uh, from a kind of negative premise from the word go yeah. it's, it's saying okay what are the problems to solve here yeah. so uh, another a book of, of Gators that um, we haven't talked about yet is which is called Common Humanity so a common humanity is basically talking about all of us have a common sense of humanity because we're all fucking human like at the very basics that's all it is the, the book I was just quoting is, is uh, A Common Humanity yeah. Oh, so, so the other one is um, good and evil and absolute conception. Sorry. Ah, right. So that so a good and evil and absolute conception is his PhD, right. um, and then okay. his work after that is a common humanity. Yeah. What he talks about that is that we all have this common sense of being human, um, and in that treating each other as human. So we all have that relatability to each other that we should be looking for, and that is the recognition of each other as human, which so is his ethics. Would you say that something like uh, gene therapy isn't possible if you adopt Gator's view. Would you say or it's possible? Or at least it's dehumanising. Yes, yeah, right. He's arguing right it's, that gene therapy would be... It's unethical, mm-hmm. according to Gator, because ethics is recognising a human as a human, and UNESCO engineering simply doesn't do that. Yeah, so so do you think that Gator would, would, would say that we should stop doing it? I think so. Yeah, completely? I think so. Do you think there's, there's a way we can uh, conceptualise the human subject and do gene therapy. If we're seeing humans as problems, that's what the kind of... From from a, a fundamental level, you've got humans as a series of problems that need to be solved. Yeah. But wouldn't it be treating someone with dignity to 
solve these problems for them. So you can see that someone's suffering. If someone's possibly going to have eczema and you see that you recognise them Change as... Change from asthma to eczema. Yeah, yeah. Is it asthma or eczema? <laughs> <laughs> asthma. We'll do eczema. We'll do Change it See someone's going to have eczema. Eczema, bad man. That's, that hurts, I've heard. Um, you, wouldn't it be treating them as a human to recognise that they would want not to have it? You'd yes. have to employ empathy, wouldn't you, to be able to yeah, go, well, to be able yeah, to do, so, so how is that not ethical? So in A Common Humanity, he talks about everybody is an individual. And individualism is really important for Gator because we're all individual, we're all unique. Um, we must respect that. And I don't think we're respecting an individual as an individual and as unique if we're talking about genetic engineering. So, yeah, we, we kind of have to employ the use of consent when we're doing this. But, and, and, then, and then really take that on board with how we fundamentally go about genetic engineering. So looking at why people want to do this and the idea of the self they, they, that they have. I probably do have a different opinion on this as far as like the modification goes. You know, the first, and I think we've talked about this before, particularly in the context of transhumanism, yeah, which is to clarify transhumanism is this idea, you know, that human beings are sort of problem, you know, again, the problem so and mortality um, is yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and people like us, you know, upload your consciousness into yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and in, in that same context, you end up having the same discussion about, okay, at what point is, you know, a human a human, at what point are we um, modifying, you know, unethically? Um, someone past the point of humour, and you can and you can start well. I think, particularly in the context of gene therapy, this is also a problem because genes are not, you know, like I've said, like I said earlier, you can also have epigenetic effects on genes. It's like, is gene therapy how you, you can call, give someone a child gene therapy by, you know, like I said, causing them an extremely stressful situation? You are changing the way they, their genes operate. And, and working not only that, but it's like if if a small baby needs to have an you know an iron heart or whatever or an iron lung or something to survive for a while, so like, the, it can't the, make the lines, choice. The lines are arbitrary. Yeah, of course. Like it's you know uh, at what point are we just going to say well it's wrong for us to make a choice about giving the, you know giving a small child life support etc. And you know while I agree, with, like you know like I said with the, the arguments um, with how how genetic engineering can definitely go awry and be a problem. Um, equally, it's like it is very difficult, and like you know, like we're having a discussion about where this grey line is exactly. In at what point are we, yeah, invoking problems? At what point are we dehumanising? But also, at what point are we also? I don't want to use the word like luddite or anything. Try to be, too, you know, at what point are we maybe over uh, worrying about a particular technology? Which, by the way, is you know fairly. Re you know, a lot of these uh, gene techniques are very recent, and not only that, but like you know, especially with um, uh, gene sequencing, which is you know the last. Uh, five to ten years has, has gone from being a thing that you can only do in like a specific laboratory and is extremely expensive to you can now sequence your genes at home with the right kit you know it's it's, it's amazing how quickly this technology is is mm -hmm. developing and in china they are already starting to mess around with genes yeah i was going to mention modify. just to like give some updated the, news the on that it has thing. happened yeah, yeah. so a, a chinese surgeon you know genetic engineer engineer sorry um twins. he has yeah so the twins were born with the predisposition to not be able to get HIV. So they're immune to HIV right. because of CRISPR, basically. Your problem with my objection to transhumanism is that it's kind of this question of where do you draw yeah. the line? And I'm not a transhumanist, I should say, but my yes. arguments against it are different in, in the sense that I don't, um, you know, I don't necessarily um, 
worry too much about this idea of seeing uh, the faults of people as being, you know, well, an inherent part or a part of an identity or like, you know, should, or shouldn't be fixed for whatever ethical reason. You know, I have, slight, I have slightly different opinions. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the, where I draw the line is where you begin to conceptualise people as faults. So you start to, to, right. to premise yeah. how you see humanity as a wider whole. Uh, by virtue of yeah. these, no, problems. I totally agree. Like, yeah, from yeah. a psychological perspective, yes. the way this can you know affect you, and I, you know, I totally yeah. agree. This can that can lead to dehumanisation, and and, like, and that's that's my rejection right. with uh, Christianity and yeah. and um, a lot of other Abrahamic religions and other religions beyond that. I think that yeah. that's what largely where my criticism extends to that. It's this 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 uh, premise of setting out to uh, sort of critique. A fundamental part, some, right. something intrinsic, so like original sin in Christianity, yeah, which yeah. is like the inherent wrong. Yeah, um, um, and I, and I think, yeah, I, th- I think sure, you there's a way to do genetic engineering. There's a way to, to kind of take on transhumanist ideas whilst still affirming mm. some sense. And and I, it is literally just the distinction of that psychological element of uh, so are you doing this to affirm or are you doing doing it to? So it's the attitude mm. you bring to the practice, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I think that yeah, I don't I, think I, anyone would disagree that whatever happens, we need to approach this with immense caution. Like, where yeah, this yeah, genetic yeah. engineering yeah. thing is yeah. one, one, a massively growing, very new technology where we're being able to, you know, do it in increasingly cheaper and more viable ways. But also, like, we don't like, you know, like I said, it's it's a complicated enough thing that it's um, its impacts on our ethics and society and the way we're going to go forward in, in is going to be incredibly important. Yeah, and I, and I think yeah. So when you're talking about changing appearances and everything, I, yeah, I'm immediately reminded of something like uh, the narcissism involved in like selfies and social media and things. This very sort of hyper uh, narcissistic way that we've come to see ourselves, and um, yeah, it kind of extends into gene therapy and stuff, and, and like the, the yeah, the uh, plastic surgery, all kinds of things like that, and yeah and then the eugenics starts to make that look a lot scarier very quickly right so i talked about this guy sabalescu who talked about it being a moral moral obligation to to want the best for our children and therefore genetically engineer them and he talks about um character traits and bearing in mind he defines his own version of character traits but when he talks about these he's talking about intelligence talking about memory strength and he's saying that surely we want to choose all these best things for our children so we want them to be the most intelligent want to be the most strong have the best memory because it means they'll do better on exams things like that but, which is fucking frightening to me right. yeah because yeah. it's like obviously those arguments laid out like that you're like oh well there's no doubt but obviously there's these all these downsides um, not necessarily just because of uh um, you know the fact that um, it's it can lead to all that down the sleep but also because of the unknowability of it, and also like you know. It, uh, yeah, I, I would say straight up that uh, flaw. I think flaws are important, I, I, and I, I think how this the race of superhumans is like right. kind of weird. and it's, it's kind of yeah. And, and then from that psychological point, it's like, why do you want a race of superhumans? Are you kind of saying we're not enough? Are you? Are you? Do you hate us? Do you hate what you are that much to want to do that? It's, yeah. like, I think also interesting enough. There's actually just a purely from a purely uh, like Darwinian biological argument against it as well would be that variation is extremely important in populations. Because mm. if like yeah, um, I mean one example would be say like the Cavendish, like uh, which is the current species of banana you're going to buy if you go to the shop that's that's a Cavendish it's a banana, um, and that particular genus of banana. 
Um, they are all more or less genetically identical. And that's why you'll be seeing articles sometimes, occasionally every five years, as an article on how the Cavendish is about to be wiped out or cease to exist. And the reason for that is because um, you get a population of genetically identical fruit like that, for example, and this has happened before in history, um, you one disease that is really threatening to this, to this animal, and them. there's no genetic variation in them, so it just wipes out the entire yep. population. Um, and this, you know, this is not inconceivable with humans, especially if you have uh, populations that are becoming more and more genetically similar or having less variation or having less of these weird random variations in them. And obviously there's, there's the whole in, inbreeding problems and all sorts, you know, all sorts of things like that. But wow. <laughs> I think we'll leave that on there. That's good. All right, cheers. Cheers.